If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll be delving into the world of the shadow. I'll discuss the cast, the background, and of course, the overly underrated score of Jerry Goldsmith. It's all today, and it begins now. I am Randy Andrews, your host. Today, with The Shadow, I thought we'd discuss some of the topics of the film and its comparisons with the radio show and, of course, the comic that still is going on. Let's start this discussion. When Shaiwan Khan, played by John Lone, and Lamont Cranston, who is, of course, Alec Baldwin, first meet, their dialogue about where Cranston purchased his tie is a spoof on product placement during the radio airing of The Shadow. The finale, in which Cranston chases Shaiwan Khan through a hall of mirrors, was intended to be longer, with Khan taunting Cranston by displaying images from his violent past on the mirrors. An earthquake in 1994 destroyed the set, and the filmmakers, out of time and money, were unable to complete the scene as originally envisioned. Also, Sam Raimi originally wanted to adapt and direct this movie, but was denied the rights to it. This movie's shadow character is a combination of the radio show and the pulp magazine versions. The elements from the radio show are his ability to become invisible, the appearance of Margot Lane, and the establishment of Lamont Cranston as the Shadow's actual civilian identity. The pulp magazine elements include his costume, his network of agents at his disposal, and his twin automatic pistols. The Shadow was originally played by James LaCurto, and then famously by Frank Reddick. And he made his debut on radio in 1931 as a third-person narrator of mystery stories on Street and Smith's Detective Story Hour. When fans of the show wrote in asking for adventures starring The Shadow, 
Street and Smith hired Walter Gibson, a magician and former ghostwriter for Harry Houdini, to write a monthly series of pulp mystery novels. The Shadow magazine ran until 1949 and was the most successful pulp series ever. Beginning in 1937, The Shadow starred in his own radio show originally featuring Orson Welles as Lamont Cranston and Agnes Moorhead as Margot Lane. Other actors later played The Shadow on the radio show, which ran until 1955. Now, what attracted Tim Curry to this project more than anything else was the chance to work with Sir Ian McKellen. The line, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit, is taken directly from the conclusion of episodes of the radio show. At the end of every episode, after the announcer has given the credits, the shadow would say, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. And then laughs. James Lucino wrote a novelization of this movie. He referenced other adventures of the shadow from the pulps. He also referenced the shadow's true identity of Kent Allard from the pulps. He also had scenes where Shaiwan Khan taunts the shadow by pointing out his apparatus for fighting crime came from his opium and heroin wealth. The bill billboard of the smoking man is a parody of the real one that actually blew smoke rings. The original was for camel cigarettes whose motto was I'd walk a mile for a camel. The llama cigarette motto parodies that with I'd climb a mountain for a llama. The Shaiwan Khan appears in four novels in the 1930s and 40s pulp magazines. The Silver Coffin of Temujin is from The Masters of Death, the fourth shadow pulp story to deal with Shaiwan Khan, while the cigarette billboard and broadcast Khan's commands comes from The Golden Master. Now, the scene in which the shadow rescues Dr. Roy Tam on the bridge is taken, though slightly altered, from the opening of The Living Shadow, the first shadow novel, and in which the shadow saves a man from suicide on the Brooklyn Bridge. This scene, in turn, resembles a scene from the Balls Tack novel with Balls Tack Rogue Vautrin. Now, this is an interesting point. Bob Kane had cited the shadow as a major influence behind Batman. And when Commissioner Wainwright Barth arrives at the museum, he's told by Inspector Cardona, who's in charge of the investigation, of the guard's death. In the pulps, Inspector Joe Cardona, which is the forerunner of Batman's Commissioner Gordon, was the shadow's main ally in the New York City police force. The empty office with B. Jonas on the door uh, was the main dropbox for reports from the Shadows agents in the pulps. These reports were collected by Burbank. The Shadows contact man uh, who passed messages back and forth between the Shadow and his agents. In Philip Jose Farmer's books Tarzan Alive and Doc Savage, his post-apocalyptic life, or his apocalyptic life, the Shadow's girlfriend, Margot Lane, was rumored to be the sister of Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. 
Margot Lane debuted on the radio in 1937. Coincidentally, the actress who played Lois Lane in the Christopher Reeve Superman movies is Margot Kidder. When Lamont and Margot are kissing at the end of this movie, a truck can be seen in the background bearing the last name of the director, Russell McCauley. And in the first scene where Lai Ping, who's played by James Wong, takes Wu as a hostage, the joke is not subtitled or translated. In Thai, Yang Ko means, but too much like my father. Now, of course, Alec Baldwin has went on to play so many other characters. He's played Jack Ryan in The Hunt for Red October. And the character's wife was played in the sequels by Ann Archer, whose father, John Archer, was one of the radio voices for The Shadow. So, you know, your six ways to Kevin Bacon. Now, in the first museum scene, as the director is walking toward the loading docks, he passes a skeleton of what appears to be a unicorn. The first sight of it is in shadow on the wall behind him. Then, as he passes, you can clearly see what looks like a horn attached to the skull of what looks like a horse. This is not correct. The skeleton is actually that of a dinosaur iguanodon. When first discovered by the early 19th century, the skeleton was incomplete, and it was thought that the iguanodon had a horn on its nose. It was later found that this was actually a spike where iguanodon's thumb should be. This skeleton is trying to capture that misunderstanding, which is unique. Contributing to the shadow's mystique is a memorable and surprisingly accomplished score by Jerry Goldsmith that went largely unnoticed at the time due to the fact that the film was completed against the Lion King in cinemas. In fact, if there ever was to be a need to identify the ultimate relatively obscure score of guilty pleasure, then Goldsmith's The Shadow could very well be it. The quirky personality of both the film and the score led by the movie's understated charge to parody the very superhero genre it belonged to, and it caused to pair to be the undeniable romp for enthusiasts of comic book dramatics. Aided by the music, the film highlights in the remarkable layers of sound whooshing through a Gotham-like setting with classical yet electronically modern in its touch. It's hard to imagine that such a dominant synthetic edge to Goldsmith's music could function so well in the noir streets of the 1930s. But the composer infuses his style very well with both the film's lighter plot elements and the impressive sound effects. Goldsmith exercises a youthful exuberance not always heard in the composer's darker scores. Just like those who created the wacky story and visuals for the film, you get the sense that Goldsmith had fun scoring The Shadow than he did for the typical romance and children's films that he otherwise had been engaged in with the time. That sheer enthusiasm can be heard in the faster-than-usual tempo of electronic rhythms that Goldsmith employs throughout the score, as well as the complexity with which he develops his countless themes and motifs. There is no doubt that The Shadow did not deserve the complicated layers of motif that Goldsmith afforded it, 
such intelligence defined by the substandard screenplay, but his effort for the genre is easy to appreciate when heard outside of context. The title theme for the film, originally hoped for by the studio to be the identity for the entire franchise to follow, is as simplistic and heroic as you can get while also preserving the basic concept of duality that runs through the entire score. The duality, of course, represents the masked and unmasked personalities of Baldwin's mysterious Cranston, whose face literally transfigures depending upon the character's mood. And the idea manifests itself in the music through the constant shifts between major and minor keys, sometimes as frequently as every other measure music. It was a tactic that Danny Elfman so masterfully manipulated for his classic Batman score, and Goldsmith's theme for The Shadow is largely an exaggerated and extended brass version of the same basic minor-major progression. Since the occasionally nebulous time frame of the film, once again, Batman uh, displays numerous elements of a more innocent decade-long past. The noble and bold brass theme is the perfect statement for campy triumph during the scenes of comic book heroism. Goldsmith's loyalty to the idea carries it into innumerable softer incarnations throughout the score, often introduced by a distinctive rhythmic figure that becomes its own motif, much like the brass string rhythms prior to John Williams' Superman theme serve their own anticipatory purpose. This bouncing rhythmic motif often exists before and under and after statements of the main theme, and even it can be boiled down to the descending major third progression that becomes a calling card of its own. The rhythm turns mysterious when it is lightly plucked by harp or delicately performed by others in conversational scenes. Let's play that theme.
The sweeping string interlude during the primary theme's major performances in the shadow is eventually revealed to be a lovely romance motif that only receives true recognition in a handful of sequences. Goldsmith's application of the theme are most frequently fragmented and barely audible, tenderly expressed by solo woodwinds or piano in less active cues. He manages to create a constant sonic battle between hero and villain within the instrumentation and structures of the score. And while the noble title theme's obvious placements in the movie are certainly crowd-pleasers, equally powerful are the Mongolian-styled outburst for Khan. For this character's larger-than-life personality, Goldsmith offers the bloated presence of Taiko drums, as well as his The Wind and the Lion-inspired array of metallic and wood wooden percussion to rock the soundscape in equal force. No better an alternating orchestral battle of wills is conveyed than between the grand brass theme of the raw percussive pounding at the end of chest pains. Let's play that cue.
The actual woodwind theme over these sequences for Khan is completely overshadowed by its underlying rhythm, suggesting in several places throughout the score, and introduced in particular in Don't Open It, but dominated by the villain's more forceful musical elements. The frontal lobotomy final finale showcases the Mongolian percussion in the theme ironically in fullest form followed by the heroic brass title theme and string dominated romance interlude all in succession yielding to a fantastic conclusion to the score and the film aside from these three major themes four if you include the rhythm under the main theme to be separate entity goldsmith unleashes a number of secondary motifs all of which are explored several times in the work so let's play those two cues, Don't Open It and Frontal Lobotomy.
The Monolith Hotel and the concept of brainwashing receive a creepy, brass-slurring identity that is first heard after massive gong early in The Clouded Mind, but shines later in that queue throughout the hotel and at the end of Fight Like a Man. The trombones, for instance, perform some striking synth-like slurs in the hotel to cleverly reflect the brainwashing concept, a technique that he would rarely touch upon again in his career. In fact, so successful was Goldsmith in this task that no subsequent performances of The Shadow by another body of musicians has ever been able to capture the same stylish personality. So let's play these cues, The Clouded Mind, The Hotel, and Fight Like a Man.
A separate motif for chasing and movement in The Sanctum, A Mission, and Get Dr. Lane often launches into the main theme. And briefly, we're going to play these cues just to show you that.
A dedicated fight motif highlighted at the start of the mirrors is pure goldsmith action at its best. And when slowed down for high drama, as in The Call and the conclusion of What I Know, which accompanies the film's nightmare sequence, the tumultuous personality of Poltergeist is resurrected. So let's play these as well. The Call and What I Know.
Goldsmith's instrumentation is key to defining several of the uniquely individual motifs that represent technology for the atom bomb in the lead character's sanctum organization, and hypnosis for both the prime characters and mystic at the start of the film in the plot. To balance the traditional comic book heroism and the bizarre mental and futuristic me mechanisms within the film, Goldsmith makes fine use of his usual array of synthesizers and library of sound effects. The resulting combination of the organic and synthetic in this shadow stands among the best of the composer's career. Not as obvious as in the works like Legend and Hoosiers, but in purely complementary bliss that allows the electronics to effectively aid both major facets of the score's personality. Two specific applications of the synthetic pitch-altering effects are frequently referenced in the score, and both are integral to its success. Heard at the very start of the film in The Poppy Fields, it's the first of these two mini-motifs, a rising tone and the treble, that denotes mystery and psychological elements of the plot. It is the opposite of the all-too-common sinking feeling effect that dominated film scores in the 2000s, a lightly ascending treble tone rather than a deeply descending bass one. While it may seem indiscriminately applied at times, Goldsmith actually starts its rise on a specific harmonic note and often matches the orchestral material to its pitch later in the effect. The other major electronic motif utilized through the score is a descending but still treble-rooted swooshing that resembles both a cymbal roll and the passing of tires of a vehicle on wet street, again accentuating the noir style of the film. The goldsmith provides this effect as an extended substitute for traditional symbol crescendos, such as the introduction of the title theme in The Poppy Fields. So again, we've looked at some of the elements of this one theme, which is The Poppy Fields. So let's play that.
The additional synthetic effects included deep brass thumping for the descending major third pairs under the main theme's rhythmic counterpart, highlighted in I'll Be There, and sometimes suggested alone to solely represent the hint of the shadow. The composer's more common, tingling, rambling electronic tones accentuate that main rhythmic figure. Less obvious is the soft keyboarding that Goldsmith provides for the love theme at the start of The Secrets and elsewhere. On the whole, I'll Be There is a good place to study the various electronic elements, and you'll also encounter some of the score's only snare uses such as, well, about, uh, say, a minute 30. For enthusiasts of the flying theme from Forever Young, Goldsmith reprises the electronic and woodwind rhythms from that cue for roughly half a minute at 2 minutes 45 seconds into the tank. So let's play I'll Be There, and then we'll play Secrets and the Tank.
The enhanced role of electronics in the shadow is made for a more impressive by the composer's employment of the traditional orchestral players. In some cases, as in the use of the muted trumpets to accentuate the newer atmosphere, the choices are intuitive. But in some cues, it's hard not to get the feeling that Goldsmith and his orchestrators did everything they could to tinker with the performance aspect of each orchestral element without causing them to become dysfunctional. Even with all the strange instrumentation and eclectic performances, though, the composer manages to maintain an airtight sense of continuity that makes the score distinctive even within the long career during which he utilized many of the same basic ingredients. Overall, you have to remember that the shadow has a fair amount of tongue-in-cheek attitude both on screen and in its music, but Goldsmith's score remains tremendously entertaining in its highlights and easily to appreciate for its unnecessary complexities when heard in its fullest length. At 85 minutes, The Shadow represents one of Goldsmith's longest scores of the era, and this does not include a major five-minute cue, which is the final battle for the mirrors, that the composer rewrote later in the production process to match the completely rearranged scene. This is very little filler material. No shadow and the jumper among the few rather uninteresting cues. In the 90 minutes of the complete score, the plethora of motifs and instrumental creativity keeping the work surprising fresh from start to finish. Now, the original 1994 commercial release of the album by Arista was for The Shadow only offered 30 minutes of the score, but it features most of the essential pieces that you will hate to love and your neighbors will love to hate. There is enough action of significant stereo swishing volume of this album, whether it's noble, pounding, or just downright strange to cause your neighbors to become irate, even more so than going masculine as the lion sequences in The Ghost and the Darkness. Included for good measure on the album were two dialogue clips, the first of which with the slogan of the legend formed, performed by Baldwin in a distorted mix, of the perfect length and the substance of whip on telephone solicitors at the highest possible volume. The other features Orson Welles' vintage narration, which is kind of unique and cool. Let's play that real quick. <laughs> much discussion is the Taylor Dane song Original Scent, meant for the end credits of The Shadow. While misplaced in terms of style and personality and of no relation technically to Goldsmith's score, it does at least utilize lyrics relevant to the film, 
and has a sense of pizzazz that lends it well to appreciation in other contexts. The Arista album presented two mixes of this song and compounds its presentation problems by separating Goldsmith's opening cue from the rest of the score with an otherwise reasonable vintage jazz song performed by Sonoa. The product disappeared from the market quickly and has since fallen badly out of print. Never to be daunted, however, are those illustrious Goldsmith fans. An expanded bootleg album, not only of the Goldsmith score, appeared many years later, and it went through several iterations. At least 20 short cues comprise the extra material, and the Entrada Records finally made its existence moot in 2012 with a stunning two-CD release of the full 90 minutes of session work, complemented by two source pieces by Dennis Dreth and the original Arista presentation with outstanding remastered sound quality. This set offers a wealth of additional material that will tickle fans to the score, almost all of which presenting worthy extensions of Goldsmith's many ideas for the film. Now the highlight of this product is the alternate version of The Mirrors, which features some of the composer's best career action material. While there have been several outstanding expanded re-releases in 2012, such as Hook, Star Trek The Motion Picture, this set with The Shadow completes favorably with those products. It represents Goldsmith's adventure and fantasy at the most affable, and despite the film's questionable quality, it is impossible to put this fantastic album too far away. So that is how we are ending the show today, by sharing The Mirrors, which is the alternate version of the album. And I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Find his work at xanderscores.com. Find me through social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Soundtrack Alley. Email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. Find the podcast through your podcatchers such as Anchor.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and of course, Apple Podcasts. And until next time, enjoy and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.